Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison, alone once again, because while I remain in Auckland, New Zealand, that wily Dr. M. Dentith, uh is, is nowhere to be seen, at least around these parts. When last we heard, the good doctor was disappearing into a tunnel in North Head here in, here in Auckland, and, and well, it seems like that tunnel might have gone a very, very long way indeed. Um, I have received some, some correspondence from him um, in the form of an interview recorded with a friend of the show and subject of more than one episode, uh, Brian L. Keeley. So M is at least in a position to be to be recording and, and reaching out to other people, so that's nice. Um, but I'm still not much closer to figuring out exactly what's gone on here. So I, th- I think the best thing to do for our purposes is to simply play the interview. It's a good interview. And then close out on my thoughts and... Uh, and see where we go from there. Hello and welcome. It's the 23rd of June, and I am talking once again with Brian L. Keeley, philosopher and conspiracy theory theorist at Pitzer College, Claremont. Good afternoon to you, Brian. Hey, how's it going, Em? Oh, it's going well. I've been understandably a little bit bored the last few days, but I'm sure the boredom will pass. How are things in sunny LA? Uh, yeah, boring and, and hot, but uh, you know that beats uh, abject terror any day, I think. Well, precisely. Although I suppose in the era of COVID-19, it's not so much the terror that terrifies us, but just normal people going about their lives, just being ignorant as to what they really should be doing. Yeah, like breathing. Yes. yes. Who who would have known two years ago that breathing would be the deadliest weapon a human being could actually use? Mm. Yes, it's very, very disturbing. In fact, we'll be talking about COVID-19 uh, later on in our discussion because we're going to talk a little bit about that whole mature conspiracy theory thing and both of our attitudes towards COVID-19 conspiracy theories. But to engage in a bit of vain, glorious stuff with regard to the podcast first, now, you've been listening to the Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre episode do you think we're doing justice to the early literature on conspiracy theory in philosophy? So I will admit that I, I listened to it for a while and actually just went back today to see, because I knew I was behind in uh, keeping up with it. And I see that the uh, last one that I listened to was the Lee Basham Ubiquitous uh uh, what is I forget the actual title. Ubiquitous and Resilient maybe is the, the title, uh, which was a uh, around a year ago, or maybe a year ago, September. So I, I have fallen behind in my uh, uh, my podcast listening. Uh, I think part of the problem is is that uh, whereas most of my podcasts are just kind of fun, entertaining things, uh, the particularly the uh, masterpiece theater has it's you know it's it's actual like you do a really good job of actually summarizing things, including papers that I haven't had a chance to read yet. So. Uh, and even the ones that I have read, they were you know, a while ago. So it's actually, I actually have to kind of clear my decks and uh, actually spend some time listening to it. I've got a road trip coming up soon, so I'm planning to catch up on a couple of them then because I can just kind of concentrate on them and and uh, think through it. But yeah, I, 
I mean, I think you're you're doing a good job and a, definitely a service of kind of getting uh, the basic frameworks out on the table. Uh, and and I am thinking that if I the next time I teach conspiracy theory stuff in the actual classroom, uh, that it might be useful to when I assign these particular papers to also assign the uh, you and Josh uh, kind of giving your pricey of it and, and discussion of it. And because it's nice that you guys often, you know, kind of add in a few points of debate and question and, you know, issues that you want to have with the paper. And that could be a good starter to a conversation in a classroom or a seminar. Yes. I mean, it's been quite interesting going back to the early literature and picking up on stuff which gets repeated later on, which kind of gets ignored for say a decade or so, or noting that people have consistently got people's positions wrong for long periods of time, uh, something which, of course, we've talked about a lot with respect to your work, uh, with your 1999 paper of conspiracy theories, where kind of end up being the villain of the piece, despite the fact that you don't write a villainous paper in the first instance. Yeah, and I think actually, I mean, I think you guys are pretty generous in your interpretation that, you know, I have gotten misread and I, but I think the blame is as much to me as to anybody else. And I think, you know, as you point out, being one of the first people to kind of be talking about it meant that I hadn't quite figured out where the slipperiness would lie and therefore the places I had to be careful when it came to, you know, being careful. And, and one of them is, I think the point that you raise is this idea of, of beginning conspiracy theories or the or the early days of a given conspiracy theory as versus its maturity uh sometime on as it gets older and it gets kind of uh investigated or at least begins people begin to investigate it and i think i must have just kind of stumbled into that in part because i you know that original paper was on timothy mcveigh and the oklahoma city bombing and that was a relatively new conspiracy theory at the time. And I was looking at some of the first kind of published uh, conspiracy theories around it. But then the kind of standard conspiracy theories that we're kind of used to talking about, like JFK or uh, the JFK assassination or uh, the moon landing hoax and, and the, you know, the American intelligence agencies uh, monitoring all transatlantic conversations. Those were quite old conspiracy theories at the time that I was writing. And even though I had examples of both new, you know, immature and mature conspiracy theories, I had not, I think, fully picked up on what work was being done by the age of the conspiracy theory in each, uh, or at least I was allowing myself to slip back and forth without kind of noting that I was doing that, which, you know, led, led to confusion, I think. Yes, I mean, the language thing, I think, is really quite fascinating here for the sheer fact that when you're laying down the groundwork, as both you and Charles were doing with these initial forays into discussion about conspiracy theory theory, if you're not working with a pre-existing language, of course, you are having to kind of invent terms to try and describe the, ty the type of issues that you're trying to map. And of course, that first foray is going to be the kind of thing which in retrospect, you might go, mm, maybe I should have been slightly more cautious about these terms if I knew people were then going to follow up on this work and then write a lot of subsequent papers in the field. Yeah, and I certainly at the time didn't, you know, I, I didn't think it would take off the way that it took off. I mean, I think... Uh, 
I thought of it, I mean, I think I mentioned in an earlier uh, discussion with you and, and maybe on the podcast of uh, when I you know, originally wrote it was, you know, somebody who was working in a completely different field of philosophy and was just looking for something that was, you know, publishable on its own and that hadn't been done before. And, and that's why I picked this particular topic. Uh, and, you know, little did I know that uh, conspiracy theories themselves, as well as the study of them, have, would blow up in years later. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that it happened, but uh, yeah, it did not, uh, did not predict it. And if I had done so, yeah, I think I would have been a little more careful in uh, laying things out. Yes, I think this is actually something that Charles Pigton has also talked about, that his initial paper, Popper Revisited, was basically written to be performed or presented at a kind of graduate night, and then thought, oh, I can actually probably send this into a journal as well. And then, of course, it, like your paper, has well, was the pebble that started the avalanche mm-hmm. in our discipline. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that original paper and where people have got you wrong or got you right. So let's start off with with kind of the crux of of conspiracy theories, which is the talk of these mature, unwarranted conspiracy theories. What makes a conspiracy theory mature? I mean, I think it can't be a matter of, you know, the chronological age uh, because a new theory is is you know, a, a, a quite old theory could not, you know, may not have been investigated very much because I think, you know, the, the level of maturity, the metric of maturity has to be something like the amount of energy that has been put into investigating it. Uh, something like, uh, you know, the uh, Woodward and Goldstein conspiracy theories about Nixon being behind Watergate uh, matured very quickly, right? I mean, you had two uh, up-and-coming uh, investigative reporters, you had inside sources, uh, Deep Throat and others that were trying to get a story out. And, and you know, even though it took, you know, looking back on it, you know, we, we kind of sometimes forget how long that period of time was. It was, you know, you know roughly... Uh, you know, almost two years, I think, between the actual break-in and the resignation of uh, Richard Nixon. So it was a couple of years that it took for that story to really kind of come to fruition. But to, you know, go from a an event to, and then very soon after conspiracy theories about that event, to, you know, the resignation of a president more or less admitting uh, to the truth of the conspiracy theories, uh, you know, in a matter of two years, that's, you know, that, that matured very quickly. Uh, whereas uh, I think, you know, there are probably other conspiracy theories that uh, did not receive a lot of attention at the time that they came about, or just, just there wasn't as much intense interest about them such that, you know, it took much longer for uh, there to be uh, investigations of them and the, and it's yeah it's that degree of investigation that is the kind of maturing of a conspiracy theory as as people start putting energy into uh, determining whether or not it's it's got legs and what the kind of you know, anomalous data there is that needs to be pursued what kinds of errant data starting to track things down um, I mean, think about some you know uh, investigations of around criminal conspiracies uh, you know there are there are criminal conspiracies that people have been working on that are unsolved cases. And some of them are cold cases for many, many years, decades, even uh, that, you know, that, you know, 
maybe just not a sufficient resources were put to them to begin with. And so they're, you know, they mature much, perhaps much less, much, much less quickly. This actually reminds me of a comment that Charles Pigton once made to David Cody at a talk at one of the New Zealand philosophy conferences, which was kind of drawing a contrast between Elvis's alive conspiracy theories and JFK was killed by Lee Harvey Oswald official theories going, well, look, there's been a lot of ink spilt on who killed JFK. It's been investigated in such rigorous detail that you really can say that we know what happened on that fateful day. And the Elvis thing, I mean, there are people who go around proposing that Elvis is still alive, but there's just nowhere near as much investigation into those conspiracy theories. And in part, that's because the death of a president is incredibly important. Whilst the death of Elvis was really important to his fans, but really didn't mean much for world history and indeed politics, which of course is is usually the most important thing that happens within people's lives. And so that theory has remained largely uninvestigated, despite the fact that people point to, but there are all these books, case of yes, but look at the mountain of books about who killed JFK. No, that's definitely true. So yes, I I think you're right that maturity with respect to an unwarranted conspiracy theory kind of persisting in public discourse can't just be about how long it is. So, and I mean, this is where I think we bring in the COVID-19 conspiracy theories, because COVID-19 has really only been with us for about a year and a half now. And yet I would say that most of the conspiracy theories about its origin purpose and transmission, the idea that it's not of zoonotic origin, it is a bioweapon being put forward by some malevolent government, and its purpose is bringing about a new world order, those theories matured very quickly, possibly within weeks or months of them appearing on online. It kind of seems odd to refer to a conspiracy theory, which seems fresh in the sense of it being completely brand new, as something being mature, i.e. the kind of thing that we can look at with justified suspicion. Although, because, I mean, it actually has some interesting, I mean, there's all sorts of interesting features of it that I think, you know, and there's things that we've talked about, and you've talked about on the podcast as well, of this idea that the way in which this particular conspiracy theory got folded in with others, right? I mean, people connecting it to things around 5G and and cell towers and things like that. And people have even kind of made connections to, uh, yeah, well, Bill Gates, right? It's, so there are, there are aspects of it that even though in some sense it was a new historical phenomenon, part of the conspiracy theories uh, immediately made connections to earlier standing conspiracy theories, right? So if, you know, if you already had your suspicions about Bill Gates, or you already had your suspicions about George Soros, that it kind of immediately got folded into those. So in in those senses, or in those aspects of it, at least, uh, you know, it takes on a level of maturity, because it's kind of, you know, it becomes a piece of a larger conspiracy uh, that has already gotten lots of investigation. other aspects of it, right? Uh, I mean, things having to do with uh, the, uh, you know, the the potential stories about whether it was uh, accidentally released uh, or on purpose released by one government or another. Uh, some of those aspects, I thought, were you know, are relatively new. 
and also ones in which I think, you know, the, the, you know, there is still a level of immaturity about it that we just can't say for, for certain. Uh, I mean, I'm actually kind of pleased with myself that there was an interview that I did uh, with a podcast. Uh, actually, it was a radio show uh, early on. I think it probably would have been around April of uh, 2020. Uh, so fairly early in the, in the, in the thing. And when we were talking about conspiracy theories, having to, to, to do with it. And one of the things I said at the time was, you know, the conspiracy theories about its origin are still relatively immature or, you know, we, there's lots of things that we at that point didn't know. Uh, and there, and there are still things that we would, you know, like to know. And, and I think this is one of the reasons why we've seen the kind of recent resurgence in some sense of, and even at the, at the official level with, you know, with president Biden, uh, in the U S calling on the intelligence services to, to reinvestigate or to, to look back through their intelligence to see whether we can, you know, find anything now about, uh, the origins of it that we, you know, maybe missed in the midst of tr just trying to, to deal with it, uh, you know, because in some sense, it doesn't matter where it comes from. If you've got, you know, if you've got a virus that's out in the env environment that's doing bad things, you know, your first uh, uh, your first order of business is to try to get the virus under control and then only later worry about, like, where did this come from? How do we stop the next one? And that's going to require things like figuring out, well, where did it come from? How did it get uh, uh, into the environment? What was its original source? Uh you know, those are, you know, it seems like now we've gotten to the point where we're returning to that seems to be an issue uh, that, that at least some people want to, to reconsider. And I think part of it is because of the, the relative immaturity of, of that aspect of the story. Although I feel that it's going to mature very quickly uh, in the next year, for sure, as, as uh, we start throwing resources at it uh, in a more concentrated way. And, and I think part of it also is just to, I mean, at least in the U.S. context, the shift from one presidency to another, which had very different uh, kind of attitudes towards, you know, both the potential sources of it and and what it meant for their presidency. Uh, there's a way in which just the sheer handing off of from one presidency to another means that, OK, at least a different kind of lens is going to be placed on it. a different kind of investigation is going to be taken about uh, just simply because, uh, you know, the the new administration in some sense might want to blame the previous administration for uh, dropping the ball, uh, whereas the previous administration would want to make sure that everything looked good for them. So, you know, at least then we can kind of at least get a new kind of investigation or an investigation with new elements to it uh, that will help with the maturity of the overall thing such that say in a year's time from now, we can say, well, you know, we had the, the, uh, the Trump administration had its look at the origins, and then we had the Biden administration's look at its uh, its look at the origins. These are two very different uh, approaches. Uh, certainly, they had different things that they wanted to be true. So, if there's any motivated belief going on here, they're at least countervailing motivated beliefs, uh, such that whatever comes out as a result of of the two investigations uh, or the two periods of investigation, uh, you know are going to add to the general maturity of, of how we should feel about it and whatever answers they come up with. And indeed, this, this actually kind of reminds me of going back to 2003 and the whole weapons of mass destruction thing, because it seems that often what motivates investigations is either an epistemic challenge 
or a political situation. So as you point out, if you're going from the Trump regime to the Biden administration, then you've got very different political goals with how you're dealing with a pandemic within your nation state. The Trump administration wanted to blame China for the entire state of what was going on in the US. The Biden administration has been much more interested, at least initially, with, oh, we've got to mop up the mess that was left behind by the last administration. And now we're going to look at the side question, which wasn't so important at the beginning of the pandemic, where we should be dealing with people being sick. Now we're going to look at how did we get to the point where people are being sick. And what's kind of interesting in the way that these investigations kind of start, or they get restarted with respect to the origin conspiracy theories about COVID-19, is the way in which a new data point can suddenly spur new investigations. So it seems that what really spurred the Biden administration to go hard on the lab leak hypothesis about the origin of COVID-19 was because a biologist by the name of David Baltimore wrote a report saying, oh, look, there's this smoking gun in the genome of the virus, which looks like it's actually been to some degree engineered through a gain-of-function thing, which means it must have come from a lab. That intelligence then got to the US. The US intelligence establishment then went, oh, we've got to do investigation into this. And then about a week later, the biologist in question then went, oh, uh, I kind of misspoke. It's not really a smoking gun per se, because uh, it turned out that this this region of, of the virus's genome, which I'm taking to be a really, really big thing, actually that's found in a lot of viruses naturally anyway. So you probably shouldn't take so much from what I've, I've said there. And that kind of made the, the lab leak hypothesis go from being relatively implausible given what we knew to suddenly something which was a political football, and then it's gone back to where it was, say, about a year ago. Yeah, although, I don't know, did you see there was a piece recently in The Atlantic? Uh, I'm actually was going to look it up. Uh, uh, Terry Gross on our um, uh, National Public Radio interviewed the author uh, taking, it's basically an investigative journalist uh, taking a deep dive into the origin story and brings up the stuff about Baltimore, but also this, I mean, it's, it's a much, what's it's, it's actually a much more interesting story in terms of, of geopolitics uh, as, as well as biology uh, of kind of figuring out like, you know, just even the question of like, how would you tell? It's not like, it's not like, uh, you know, somebody who creates a virus is going to sign it, you know, the way they might sign a, a, a painting uh, trying to figure out exactly, exactly what you would look for in order to, uh, you know, t- to find the telltale signs of a, uh, uh, a human uh, origin to it. Uh, I mean, it, and I, I mean, it's part of it goes back to, I mean, my own interest in this topic of conspiracy theories comes out of an interest in philosophy of science. Uh, and one of the things that I think is really interesting about the COVID-19 story, whatever that story is going to be, it's, it's ultimately going to be a scientific story, or at least in part a scientific story. It's also going to be in part a political story. Uh, but uh, you run into all the problems that you have of, I mean, 
people have been trying to figure out the origins of, of viruses for quite a while uh, and figuring out, you know, like what animals do they come from? Uh, you know, what, what leads them to, you know, jump, you know, we used to talk about the species barrier. We, we don't talk about that so much anymore just because it turns out not to be as, as clear of a concept as, as uh, one might've thought. Uh, but I mean, you, you run into all the problems you run in with in the sciences in general and understanding uh, how sciences go about, uh, uh, establishing the claims that they have. So it kind of inherits all the problems of philosophy of science and then kind of adds an extra layer of, uh, of, of politics on top of it just to, just to make it more fun. Uh, so, so that's why I'm thinking it's, you know, it's, it's a much more interesting story than, than, uh, than some of the other, uh, other conspiracy theories that we might have that don't have anything to do with science at all or, aren't really scientific stories at all. It's also an interesting story for the sheer fact that I think the writer of the initial Vanity Fair piece mm-hmm. on the David Baltimore mm-hmm. allegations of the smoking gun was also one of the writers who were, who pushed hard for Iraq having those weapons of mass destruction back in 2003. Mm-hmm. So there's also this worry that there, there are certain vested interests who want to be hawkish about overseas activities so then justify a kind of imperial response from the U- US. So as you say, the, the politics here becomes really quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was also there was a uh, a report or I guess a letter that came out uh, right around the same time I think as the original Baltimore piece that you were just mentioning, uh, saying that you know hey this I, maybe it was even in some sense a reaction to Baltimore's uh, you know uh, soundbite uh, that he had about it, saying that you know hey there's you know there's no chance that this you know this is more than likely you know we're a bunch of scientists and we can tell you it had a it had a, a biological source. It was not uh, man-made. And oh, by the way, we you know, and we're just a you know a group of uninterested scientists who just want to you know get this out on the table. Uh, and then it turns out that you know some of the people, and, partic- and particularly the person that was most behind getting this letter written and signed in the first place, turned out to have some conflicts of interest. Like had actually uh, you know funded some of the uh, the laboratory that you know in Wuhan that had been. Uh, you know, that had been, uh, you know, fingered as a potential source. So, and, and the original letter did not make clear those uh, connections. So, you know, you get back to the, you know, some of the standard things that we often see around conspiracy theories of, of various levels of self-interest and lack of transparency that uh, kind of, again, make the, make the story a little more complicated than, than it seemed on the surface. Yes, I mean, I think one of the things which is going to be interesting about the COVID-19 pandemic and the conspiracy theories around it is that at the moment, when you're trying to both combat a virus and also deal with various origin, transmission and purpose theories about COVID-19, There's a lot of information which is very hard to get to the bottom of now, which will make the study of COVID-19 much more interesting in, say, 10 years' time, where hopefully the pandemic is is well gone, or we're used to living in a COVID being like a seasonal cold thing. But when you're in the middle of a pandemic, fighting on multiple fronts, not a very good idea. Mm -hmm. 
No, exactly. Now, moving away from the terror of the virus to the other kind of central point of your 1999 paper, which is after you talk about the problem of mature unwarranted conspiracy theories, you then move on to talking about the kind of pervasive skepticism that continued belief in these mature conspiracy theories can lead to. And it seems that a lot of the writers on conspiracy theory who followed you kind of took it that you were advocating that belief in conspiracy theories generally leads to this kind of pervasive skepticism, and thus that is a reason to reject belief in conspiracy theories. But that isn't a fair portrayal of your view, is it? No. And, oh, by the way, just to throw this in, you're right. It was actually the Vanity Fair piece by Catherine Eben that I was thinking of uh, that just came out a couple of, uh, about two weeks ago, I think. So, or I think it's Eben, but I just didn't want to lose that thought. So yeah, this is a topic that I'm I'm currently trying to think through. As you point out, it's one of the it's one of the other areas of contention around my paper. This idea of what's come to be known as the public trust argument, or uh, the uh, this idea that we shouldn't that that it's a knock against conspiracy theories uh, and a reason for not believing in them because if you believed in them, it would erode our public trust. Right, that they are kind of a, uh, you know, the, this is the idea of conspiracy theories as being kind of a, a cancer uh, in a society by uh, causing people to uh, be playing around with conspiracy theories instead of trusting, you know, the authorities that they ought to be trusting. And that was, like I said, that, that was never the argument that I thought I was making in the original paper. I thought I was making the argument that was kind of the other way around, which is that in many ways, the only way that you can take certain conspiracy theories seriously, particularly certain mature conspiracy theories seriously, is if you had a pre-existing uh, lack of trust, that it kind of presupposed a level of distrust, uh, not that it would necessarily lead to uh, distrust, but that it's, it's in some sense, you yeah, you have to have a high degree of distrust to take it seriously, often because of the, uh, the amount of work that must have been put into it, right? That, uh, that to, you know, people have looked at this, uh, they have, you know, they have uh, not found evidence in favor of the conspiracy. And so the only way you can hold on to that conspiracy or take it really seriously is if you just discount all of that stuff that's been done, like everybody's been lying up to this point, or everybody's been doing a shoddy job, or perhaps uh, uh, they had conflicts of interest, and and they just didn't want us to know the truth. Um, and, you know, the, you know, when, and then when you think about, I mean, I thought about cases of things like the moon landing hoax, uh, you know, the, the number of, of people that would have to be in on that particular uh, conspiracy, and with relatively little uh incentive uh to to go ahead with you know the hoax if it is indeed a hoax uh seems to you know involve a pretty uh negative view of uh of of the people that are involved uh that they would be so willing to lie so easily and it's like okay that that requires a, a pretty significant degree of public distrust uh the ironic thing is is that even though that wasn't the argument, the, the public trust argument is not the one I thought I was making originally. Uh, 
these days I actually find myself kind of being more interested in the argument that I was accused of holding and, and maybe find it a little more plausible than I did then. And that's the idea of the use of conspiracy theories as disinformation campaigns or as parts of disinformation campaigns that uh, at least we have uh, some reason to believe that uh, conspiracy theories as a phenomenon in the West may be uh, in the case where it's being promoted by parties that wish to undermine the public trust, uh, that there's there's a general sense that uh, you know if you can get people really taking conspiracy theories seriously, then they aren't going to trust people on other things. Uh, you know, for instance, if you can, you know, it might be good for for certain people in the world that the U.S. not uh, vaccinate itself. Uh, against the new virus. So if you can do something that kind of generates distrust about vi- uh, about vaccines, then you can make sure that, you know, the U.S. is going to be kind of held back uh, by uh, its lack of vac- vaccination. Um, so, I mean, I think there's a role of conspiracy theories in public trust. There's clearly a connection between the two. Uh, and one of the things that I'm I'm kind of actively looking at these days is kind of revisiting that argument and saying, you know, basically that wasn't the argument that I thought I was making before. And I think there's a reason why in 1999, uh, it probably wasn't necessarily an argument that uh, was very sound in the sense that, that there weren't uh, forces perhaps uh, pursuing a disinformation project. Uh, although that's not completely clear. I mean, the KGB and the, and the CIA were kind of uh, had combating uh, you know, we're fighting on the stage of, uh, of misinformation for, you know, quite a long time during the Cold War. So maybe it's naive to think that this is a relatively new phenomenon, but that nonetheless, uh, that it seems to be something that's kind of worth looking into to see, uh, you know, what is the role that conspiracy theories play on the public trust and, and you know, what are the implications of that? I mean, certainly we saw with the Trump administration the labeling practice of calling information the president didn't like as fake news was very much a missile disinformation campaign coming out of the White House to either distract people from news which was bad or to undermine trust in traditional sources and make people trust, say, the president and his team moreover. So, yes, there is obviously something about the labeling practice of calling something a conspiracy theory, which can then lead to a pervasive erosion of trust over time. But I was also thinking, going back to the Elvis example, one of the interesting things, say, about someone who sincerely believes that Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone, and that there was a coterie of people on the grassy knoll made up of the FBI, the CIA, Cuban rebels, Russian mafia and the like, all shooting at JFK at the same time to get their to get their bulletin. This is the kind of person who believes that actually Elvis Presley is still alive and is recording music to this day. Is that you could go, well look, given the amount of investigation that's gone into the JFK assassination. If you believe that it wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald, or it was Lee Harvey Oswald and all these other people, there's a whole bunch of other things that you've got to kind of give up to be able to maintain that belief. Well, conversely, with the Elvis is Alive conspiracy theories, which have not been investigated to the same extent, you can believe that without actually giving up much else 
about the world because all you're doing is going well I just believe he's alive and recording music it doesn't actually say anything about politics or world history or governments being complicit in covering these things up over, over time it's just one man faked his death probably with the help of his family and then went on to lead a new life so the fact that the Elvis theory isn't mature in the same way that various JFK conspiracy theories are means that you have different levels of skepticism about things generally in the world around you. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think there might be also kind of what you're pointing to is this kind of connection between skepticism in general and and the maturity, right? That the if if the metric of maturity has to do with the degree of effort that's put into the investigation, uh, that is going to mean that uh, less mature theories just are just connected to the rest of the epistemic network far less or far more tenuously, right? It's, it's just, you know, there's less going on there and therefore, you know, it's much more compartmentalized. Um, I mean, I, Again, thinking back to the in the case of of science, right? There are certain counterfactual claims that have been, you know, investigated, and you know, uh, I mean, I think here of somebody like Lakatos, you know, with this idea that you know that different ideas that different ideas in science, different claims in science, have a different degree of centrality to them, right? And and that some, you know, if you want to call uh, the law of gravity into question, right, that's, you know, if that were to be false, right, or, or the implications, the downstream implications of the falsehood of that claim, uh, the law of gravity would be man- monumental, right? It means so much of, of science would have to be rewritten if, uh, if it turned out that that was, uh, a, you know, was false, which is why Einstein uh, was so uh, monumental, right? Is it's like, you know, when you, when you mess with things that fundamental, right, it means significant revolutions in science that, that go out and, you know, affect many, many things. Whereas if you are somebody who thinks that the claim that, say, stress causes ulcers, it may be false, and that instead it's being caused by a microorganism, right? That area, that kind of claim is much less central, right? You, you would have to change certain ideas about uh, the, you know, the immune system perhaps and about the digestive system. But unlike, you know, the law of gravity, that's a much more constrained set of claims and a, a much more constrained set of, of connected claims such that change that will get you a Nobel Prize, but you know, it, you're not going to be picked as you know the most important scientist of a century the way that Einstein was, uh, because you know falsifying that claim is important, but not nearly as as connected to so many other things, and therefore requiring a kind of a revolution. And I think the same sort of thing can be said for uh, different conspiracy theories, and often maturity is is related to that. Uh, Know, as you say, not much, not much is going to follow from discovering that Elvis Presley is actually alive or at least lived longer. Instead, uh, you know, we worry about uh, what you know. If JFK was assassinated in a different way, that might have massive impacts on geopolitics. Yes, I think there is something really quite interesting about the way that relative maturity affects relative skepticism. If we go, if we're going to go down this particular path, 
we've we've kind of dealt in in the past here with 1999 and your paper although you've talked about how you're you're now looking as to how you're going to take those arguments from 1999 the way that people have looked at your arguments from 1999 and maybe rehabilitate yourself to a certain extent in the literature by reframing this debate around the kind of misinformation, disinformation thing. And of course, this has all been a discussion in social epistemology, the way that as social beings active in communities, our knowledge is very much dependent on learning things from other people and transferring that information along. But there's also a question as to what other avenues in philosophy can the interest in conspiracy theory actually lead to. So there are obvious connections with epistemology, given we're talking about knowledge claims. But what other connections can we make in philosophy to say things like ethics or metaphysics, do you think? Yeah, this is, I mean, something I've been thinking about recently, and I'm also kind of curious to to hear what you have to say about it as well. Uh, But yeah, as you say, the kind of the source of of thinking about conspiracy theory or conspiracy theory theory, at least within the context of, of uh, philosophy has come out of epistemology, right? It's, it's, you know, I mean, and I think this has a lot to do with this idea that, you know, that both uh, Charles and I kind of pushed on early is this, you know, focusing on the theory aspect of conspiracy theory, right? Of, you know, noting that it's, you know, that's not just a, a way of speaking, but then there really is something theoretical explanatory in uh, the kinds of conspiracy theories that we we're interested in. And so that, you know, and I mentioned earlier, you know, that I was coming at this uh, from a perspective as a philosopher of science. So I was interested in kind of scientific explanations and, and uh, some of the stuff that I've written about conspiracy theories afterwards kind of compare scientific explanations and religious explanations with conspiratorial explanations and just, you know, kind of focus on that explanatory uh, and and knowledge and understanding aspect of of conspiracy theories, but now that you know more and more people are getting interested in conspiracy theories more generally, you know, like you know, as we know, all these people outside of philosophy, political scientists and the economists and the cultural theorists and the historians and the you know the the kind of this idea that conspiracy theory theory isn't just philosophy anymore; it's it's now uh, lots of different psychologists and neuroscientists and all these different people involved that I think with that comes this idea of like, well, who else in philosophy may want to kind of get in on thinking about conspiracy theories. And, you know, in, at least in my, the, when I think of, you know, uh, philosophy more generally, or when I'm giving, you know, talking to my intro philosophy students, uh, in, you know, in my first year seminars or whatever, you know, I kind of, you know, tell the story of like, there's kind of three main branches of, of philosophy. There's metaphysics, you know, what is there, what exists, what sorts of things are in the universe and, and, you know, what's our ontology, what are the things that are there to talk about? And then there's, and that's metaphysics. And then the second area is epistemology, which is like, well, what can we know about those things, right? What, what knowledge can we have? What, how do we titrate our level of belief to any particular claim? Uh, how to think about the difference between truth and fiction and, and those sorts of things. And then the third area, so you got metaphysics, you got epistemology, and then the third area is kind of the more general area of value theory, 
uh, of you know what's good, what's beautiful, uh, and you know that's where you get your ethics, that's where you get your aesthetics, uh, your your judgments, right, of of good and bad, of right and wrong, those sorts of things. And obviously, all three of these are connected, but they kind of constitute the three kind of big areas of of philosophy. And so, if if the epistemic is the original source of conspiracy theory, right? What is there for metaphysics and value theory to do? And this is, like I said, something I've been thinking about for a while. I mean, one of the metaphysical issues that I think that comes up is just getting our heads around exactly, you know, what sort of a phenomenon is a conspiracy, right? Uh, it's, you know, it's a social phenomenon that, you know, seems to require, has certain features and seems to require more than one person, uh, more than one agent. Uh, but as one of the things that I've been interested in, in when thinking about religious explanation is, you know, can, if, if God does it on his own, uh, and, and we're monotheists, right, then is that by nature is, you know, by its very nature, something which is then can't be conspiratorial, right? Because it's being done by, you know, it's the ultimate lone gunman, right? If, if God does it by himself. Well, that's the thing, right? Is, is like, first of all, it forces you to think, you know, thinking about conspiracies and the relationship to religion raises these kinds of metaphysical questions of like, well, is that the right way to think about God? You know, would it, would that problem go away if, uh, if you had a non-monotheistic view of God or if you uh, even your monotheism involved these different, you know, three persons uh, in, in one God kind of idea. Uh, so, I mean, I think, you know, part of it is like, OK, well, what is really, you know, what are the essential aspects of a or essential elements of a conspiracy? Is it that it be done by one or is there something else about it? You know, is the secrecy component the more important component? Is the nefariousness of it the more important thing? Right. And so getting at the kind of metaphysics of what sort of a thing is a conspiracy, uh, what are its features? You know, these are, some, I think, some kind of interesting uh, metaphysical questions that come up and and the relationship, you know, what kinds of beings are required to participate in the conspiracy, right? How much foreknowledge do you have? How much sentience do you need to have? And so forth. Uh, so getting clear about these metaphysical issues, I think, are are interesting. And, 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 and even uh, these questions about whether conspiracies are really about explanations at all, right? Because a, a number of people who've critiqued work in the philosophy of conspiracy theories kind of really push on this idea that, you know, yeah, Charles Pignan and I started out with this idea that it's all about explanation, that we really concentrated on the theory aspect of conspiracy theory. But maybe it's a different kind of a speech act altogether, right? It really isn't an attempt to explain anything. Maybe it's a signal of tribe membership, right? It's it's more when somebody uh, participates in conspiracy theories, or at least an important segment of people who perhaps participate in conspiracy theories aren't really in it for the explanations and knowledge claims at all. They're, you know, they're thinking of it as 
as being a way of identifying uh, who they are and who who they whose team they're on, whose tribe they're in, and so forth. That maybe you know Charles and I have gotten the wrong end of the stick from the very beginning because metaphysically we took conspiracy theories to be ultimately something epistemic and, and explanatory. Maybe it ought to have been, been in a different category altogether. You know, it should have really been philosophy of language that we should have been doing or calling upon, not, uh, not Hume and, and uh, works of epistemology. And I think there's also all sorts of interesting, obviously interesting things to be thought of in, in terms of the epistemic realm, right? This idea of, of conspiracy theories as problems, right? Is, is there a problem associated with conspiracy theories? The public trust story that we were just talking about being one aspect of it. Uh, but as we've seen in other cases as well, right, there's, you know, there was a, a famous paper on the ethics of belief this idea that, you know, that there is a normative component to holding certain beliefs that, uh, that it's not mere, it isn't that epistemic considerations are completely divorced from ethics. What you believe, uh, can have important impacts. You know, if you, if you are somebody who believes that your ship is, is, uh, the ship that you own is seaworthy. And in fact, it isn't seaworthy. And you send a, a group of sailors out to their death, uh, because you had the wrong belief right? There might be ethical implications to that, that maybe I ought to have investigated more uh, to find out whether that belief was actually a, uh, a good belief that, you know, maybe, or, or maybe I was uh, acting through prejudice and so forth. Uh, that I think we see this, especially in the cases of uh, the things you know, revolving around people like Alex Jones and the Sandy Hook shootings, where you have somebody who is saying, hey, I'm just investigating conspiracy theory that maybe there were crisis actors and no children were uh, actually hurt. You know, there are all sorts of ethical issues come up of, well, okay, but if you're wrong, you're causing a great amount of pain to somebody who's already experienced a great amount of pain. They've lost a child in a shooting, and now you're calling into question whether that child ever even existed. Uh, and you're forcing somebody to, or you're trying to get them to produce a death certificate uh, to prove that their child was actually killed, right? There's all sorts of kind of moral implications of like, well, yes, you're asking a question, but there's an ethical dimension, a normative dimension to the questions that you're asking, right? Uh, if you ask questions in an inappropriate way or in an inappropriate context, uh, that may be doing more harm than good, that you're not showing sufficient humility uh, in, in your question asking. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just kind of interested in these other ways in which conspiracy theories intersect with philosophy that aren't just about epistemology, just aren't about them being theories. Uh, and kind of curious also just to hear what you think of like other aspects of philosophy that should be brought in or could be brought in when thinking about this phenomenon that we've been thinking about for the last decade or so. Well, yes, I mean... As we've seen with, say, the work of Pat Stokes, which has kind of looked at the ethical dimension of what it's like to be a particularist around conspiracy theory and doing the whole, look, there are consequences to the just asking questions mode, which is that you are, you're kind of sometimes actually covertly making assertions about people doing unethical acts. And there probably is a kind of norm that says maybe you shouldn't engage in those kind of speech acts without actually having enough evidence. It's not enough to go, I'm just asking questions. You kind of need overwhelming evidence before that licenses 
making claims of, I think maybe Prince Charles was responsible for the death of Princess Diana. If you want to make that claim, you should have really good evidence rather than just mere suspicion. Now, of course, the issue, as people have pointed out with Stokes's position, is that there actually there are certain people in the world who are allowed to make those allegations. Police officers, when they're investigating crimes, are allowed to merely suspect that maybe you murdered your wife and we're going to bring you in for questioning now. And maybe the courts then exist to kind of mitigate that by giving you name suppression during the investigation. But there's still a serious allegation being made against you. But we take it that these people are licensed in just the right way. So, yeah, I mean, there are there are kind of interesting issues around the ethics of belief there and what kind of licenses and doesn't license allegations. I mean, on the metaphysics part, I think what's kind of interesting about all of the work in philosophy, I say all of it, probably most of the work in philosophy on conspiracy theory, is a lot of it starts with definitions. So a lot of it seems to start with a little bit of conceptual analysis, which we typically take to be kind of an, a form of an analytic metaphysics, where we're defining our terms to go and look by conspiracy theory, we mean the following. So even though we're doing epistemology, we're doing a bit of, a bit of metaphysics first in order to then go look if we accept the following definition, so we take it this is the metaphysical state of affairs, then the following epistemic analysis is naturally the consequence of this thing. And of course, Martin Orr and I, when we did our did wrote our paper, Secrecy and Conspiracy, we kind of did a metaphysical analysis of what is the secrecy component of conspiracy? Because we just typically take it that a conspiracy is two or more people working in secret towards some end. But there actually had been very little discussion as to, but what do we mean by working in secret here? Keeping secrets from home? How many people? How long do we keep the secret for? If something is a kind of open secret, do we still consider it to be conspiratorial? So there is some kind of there is some work to be looked at with kind of fleshing out that definition of what both a conspiracy is, which I think most people are going to say are things that do occur within the world, although I sometimes think that some of the generalist analyses of belief in conspiracy theories are almost committed to a metaphysical view of the world where conspiracies never happen at all, given the way that they talk about conspiracy theories in this really, really pejorative gloss. But the the question is to whether what conspiracy theories are. Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting notion there. But to kind of move beyond that, we talk about the value theory generally stuff. So I think there's probably some really interesting work to be done in the aesthetics of conspiracy theory with their kind of their presentation, the way that they they work, what makes them pleasing, what makes certain conspiracy theories the kind of thing that people will pick up and move with versus the kind of conspiracy theories that people kind of glance at and go, no, I'm not going to buy that for a dollar at all. And I know that there's there are some people outside of the domain of philosophy who are looking at aesthetic notions of conspiracy theory. I'm kind of tangentially involved in an art project that's going on in Lund in Sweden at the moment where they did a exhibit of 
moon landing hoax memorabilia and photos and they then had a guidebook associated with the exhibition and i wrote a short piece on that about about space conspiracy theories their history and where 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 they come from which allowed me to then do a long diatribe about the film capricorn one which is often taken to be the kind of the perfect example of a of why the moon landing conspiracy theories became big again was when we saw a faked a faked fake fake faking of a mars landing and people went that that looks at the moon landing so we can think that in a stu- studio. So yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of aesthetic stuff which I think would be really interesting to get into as well. No, no, and I think it's also interesting. It's you know, there's the, I mean the, the precursor to a lot of our current interests in conspiracy theories goes back to the idea of urban legends, right? People don't talk about as urban legends as much now. That was a big thing in the '80s and the '90s, uh, even though some of the conspiracy theories that we talk about now actually just are urban legends uh you know just kind of dressed up in a in a new way uh but but urban legends were a big thing when uh dawkins originally proposed his idea of the meme right and and the original idea of the meme as as coming out of evolutionary theory and then thinking about you know just as there are things which make genes uh adaptive such that a gene will kind of, you know, there's the, the phenotypic traits that are associated with a gene are going to be the things that are going to lead to its being replicated uh, in a, a situation of natural selection. Uh, his idea, well, you know, the same thing happens in the cultural world, uh, except now we're going to talk about memes and not genes, but there's always going to be, you know, what is it that makes a particular meme catchy, right? You know, what makes an earworm you know, an earworm in, in songs, you know, a nice hook or, or having a, a beat. It might not even be something that you like, but you just can't get it out of your head. Or, you know, the same thing, you know, you can't, uh, you may not actually like a particular meme, but you kind of can't stop yourself from repeating it to somebody and, and, and telling them about all oh, this horrible thing I heard. And then now it's in their head and they're going to pass it on to somebody else. And this seems like an area, at least when people were talking about memes and urban legends, there was a lot of kind of conscious thought about the aesthetic components, right? Because that's, you know, why is it that certain memes are going to be replicated? Well, they must have some rhetorical or aesthetic value that people are picking up on. And then that means, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to replicate them. Uh, but I think similar sorts of things can be said about and asked about conspiracy theories. I think that's interesting of, of you know, what makes a particular conspiracy theory catch on and, and be the sort of thing that kind of gets legs as it were. And of course, the wonderful thing about talk about urban legends is it actually allows us to then talk about the kind of recurrent nature of these things. So we talked about how many COVID-19 conspiracy theories actually end up either being the resurgence of, say, a yellow peril conspiracy theory or an adaptation of the existing 5G conspiracy theories that were around for a long time, well, say, around for a few years before the pandemic occurred. And, of course, what's interesting about urban legends is that they are effectively just modern forms of folklore. 
the the contemporary form of a traditional tale. I used to when I when I used to teach the critical thinking course at the University of Auckland, we do an entire section on urban legends and how urban legends kind of function as a way of giving moral messages. So when you have the urban legend of the baby Caesar who's left at home and there's a call that comes from within the house and you go, well, look, this is the case of if you trust your children with a complete stranger, these things are going to happen. In the same respect, when you had the urban legends about children playing in sandpits and then accidentally stabbing themselves with a heroin needle leading to an overdose, that was a story that never occurred. No one's ever been able to track down a case where that actually happened. But the story functions as a way of telling people, look, investigate the environment your children are going to be playing in. They're just these recurrent na- narratives. Or, or just of, the superiority of, the of private play pits to public ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, that too. Although, admittedly, if you're rich enough, you also might have heroin needles in your in your child's pl- play pit that's as well. True, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the places where this comes up recently is uh you know the the recent conspiracy theories around the the blue lasers that are causing uh wildfires right and and i think i mean there has to be something to the fact that it's not just blue lasers but they're jewish blue lasers like, the jewishness has yeah. nothing to do with the story but there i think it has everything to do with its replication right i mean the fact that it's you know the the story is put in terms of jewish blue lasers then suddenly people want to talk about it, if only to make fun of it, right? It's like, because there's a level of absurdity with adding in, you know, that, that uh, you know, somehow it's connected to uh, Jewish conspiracy theories or Israel or something like that. It's like, that gives it that little extra oomph that, you know, you can, you know, if it had just been space lasers or lasers would have been one thing, but then you make them space lasers. Okay, that's interesting. And oh, Jewish space lasers, right? Since it's like, you know, it's, it's, it almost reminds me of the kinds of stories or the kinds of rules of thumb that people give fiction writers, right? That that's exactly the kind of advice, you know, if you're going to talk about lasers in your story, make sure they're Jewish space lasers because you want to give it a kind of a specificity and a, and a, and a particularity because that sticks in people's minds better, right? And these are kind of the advice that you give fiction writers uh, or joke writers, right? It's like, how do you make your your joke land better how do you make your joke you know what's the button that you need to put on your your joke in order to really make it kind of you know you know funny and memorable right i think some of the same aesthetic features in that we see in joke writing and in and narrative fiction writing are the sorts of things that you're going to see in in conspiracy theories or at least those conspiracy theories which end up having more legs. And also what's interesting there is, of course, it gives you a kind of cultural context as to who people think the threat is. Because when we had, I say we, in the Southern Hemisphere, when Australia had their massive burning season last summer, the big conspiracy theory there was also about space lasers causing the fires. But the culprits weren't the Jews, it was the Chinese. Uh-huh. It was the Chinese space lasers oh. that were causing those fires. So you you still have the, specific, the specificity, and you've still got the let's go with an old threat here. 
but you also have the in the cultural context of say people who are worried about economic expansion by different powers you go well who's our who's our most local threat ah we're going to blame the chinese for what are obviously fires which either occur naturally because australia is a country where gum trees explode in high summer heat because they want to and also a few cases of what turned out to be actual arson as well but definitely not space lasers and even if they were space lasers probably not chinese space lasers and so, yeah, there's a kind of nice, a nice rounding there that actually, even though I don't think that conspiracy theories and urban le- legends are one and the same, because I, I do think conspiracies occur, also I don't think that children get randomly stabbed by heroin needles and sandpits in pub- public playgrounds, the recurrent features of certain of these stories which kind of allow us to judge their maturity to a certain extent, is actually a really interesting aesthetic feature. And there probably is a fairly decent paper to be written looking at doing that comparison and the disambiguation to kind of get us to the root as to why there are certain conspiracy theories that we kind of just see and go, no, I've I've seen that one before and I'm rejecting it, or I know why people are adopting this one, because it's a really popular hit from the 1950s that's been repackaged with a drum and bass beat. Yeah, or, or just, and I think part of it is, is now that we're paying more attention to it, I'm hoping that we're going to get more data on, you know, the conspiracy theories that didn't take off, right? I mean, the, you know, or, or being able to, you know, to, to track them through time and figure out, like, you know, at what point did this particular conspiracy theory take off, right? Or, or even within different subcultures, right? Like, when did this group of people start paying attention to this particular thing? Uh, and like you said, kind of, kind of the same way that we can do, you know, musicologists do with music, right? Of, of tracing trends and so forth through time and being able to kind of spot the Bo Diddley beat as it's, you know, transformed from era to era uh, from, you know, from an origins in a you know, particular cultural context, uh, being able to do that sort of thing. Conspiracy theories, I think is going to be interesting now that we're, you know, people are paying more attention to it so that we can, you know, get some more data on it. And also, we also live in a kind of golden age for being able to track these things. So if you were trying to, track conspiracy theories that failed to take off in say the 1930s or 40s actually it's going to, it's going to be very hard to find them in in the first place let alone see why there was no reaction given that so many conspiracy theories originate online now we can kind of find that first instance and then go all right so why did this one which seems remarkably similar to this really successful variant here why did this not take off? Or, or conversely, and I think this is where QAnon becomes interesting. If you look at the history of the Anon accounts pretending to be high-level entities in the American government, why was it the QAnon roleplay that became the really big thing and not all the other Anons doing similar things around about the same time? And you can then look at, you know, what actors are involved. How are these things spreading? 
Uh, is it a case of the in the other non-account cases, everyone was kind of in on the joke and they realized there was a role play? Well, maybe with the QAnon one, maybe there were one or two people who came in who didn't realize the rules of the game and then spread it elsewhere. We can kind of diagnose how these, these tendrils work and it might give us a better idea as to why some of these things spread and some of them just wither on the vine. But yeah, I think you're right. Which means that there's, there's a lot of exciting work to be done. Yeah, and I think your your element, you know, bringing in the aesthetics or or rhetoric. I mean, that's a kind of interesting area that doesn't get a lot of attention these days. Uh, but the kind of the rhetoric of conspiracy theories uh, and the rhetorical features, I think, are an interesting area that hasn't gotten enough attention. So we've talked a lot about the past. We've talked a little bit about connections with other areas in philosophy, but let's now talk about the future. So put on your academic robes, pull out your academic crystal ball, and use your California-sanctioned scrying ability to tell me where we should be going in the future in the study of conspiracy theory. So yeah, I think you know the the big development. There well, there's been two big developments in thinking about conspiracy theories from a philosophical point of view since, you know, Charles and I did our thing at the end of the, of the last millennium. And first of all, is this idea that, you know, there's so many more philosophers that are interested and and we just talked about the different ways in which philosophy could get involved. It's not just about epistemology anymore. I think you're right. There's aesthetics, there's metaphysics, there's all sorts of, of, of ethical issues that are, that come up. And so one of the things I'm looking forward to is that just kind of, you know, getting beyond the the old stories about, you know, whether or not conspiracy theories should be believed or not, whether they're warranted or not, uh, and, you know, what goes into that. I think, you know, still stuff to be done there, but I think there's lots of other f- interesting philosophical stuff to be said about conspiracy theories. But I think the other big development is that not only are there more philosophers paying attention to conspiracy theories, they're just, there's just more academics in general paying attention. Uh, we, you know, the nice thing that we have now is this kind of wealth of investigators from a variety of different fields, you know, just mentioned the possibility of rhetoric, but there's history, political science, economics, cultural history, psychology, neuroscience, you know, all these different areas of people that are interested in conspiracy theories. And I think what's going to be incumbent upon philosophers are to kind of engage with that larger literature, uh, that uh, that recognizing that this, you know, the study, con- conspiracy theory theory is an interdisciplinary or a transdisciplinary uh, endeavor, right? That there's this interesting social phenomenon that just as, you know, if we want to study something like religion, sure, there's philosophy of religion and there's lots of philosophy to be done about religion. But, you know, to try to do a study of religion and not pay attention to the sociology of religion or the anthropology of religion or the politics of religion, uh, the history of religion, right? All these things are things that are that need to be folded in to our discussion. And I mean, I think that philosophers so far have been a little slow on the uptake of that. Uh, you know, they're starting with the philosophical literature. But I think the thing that I'm really looking forward to in the next couple of years is what happens uh, when philosophers start to get into the fray with academics from other disciplines. And we start to kind of, you know, 
use use our philosophical skills to talk with and and to interact with computer scientists and and uh you know people who are doing digital humanities and all the other sorts of things that are you know that are kind of i mean in our conversation we've been having today right a lot of those issues are issues that come from outside of of philosophy and to me that's you know what's really super exciting and probably has something to do with the fact that my day job when I'm not thinking about conspiracy theories is being a cognitive scientist. Uh, I'm a philosopher who thinks a lot about the mind, who thinks a lot about uh, how the senses work. And when I think about the senses, I have to engage with the neuroscience of the senses and the psychology of the senses and the anthropology of the senses. And you know, there's this entire field now called sensory studies, which brings together people from a variety of different fields uh, that are all interested in this phenomenon of how we perceptually perceive the world. It's this cool, really interdisciplinary endeavor. And the thing that excites me most about conspiracy theory theory is that uh, it's maturing as an area of study such that now there's a lot of, there's a lot of people playing the game and, and are, are investigating things. And, uh, and I'm going to be very interested to see how that feeds back into philosophy and how philosophy can feed into it. Yes. I do think that interdisciplinary work is kind of the future because at the moment, I think there's a lot of work happening in silos. Uh, as listeners are probably not aware, Brian is part of the Conspiracy Theory Theorist Social Club, which is a three-weekly meeting where we read papers, discuss papers in conspiracy theory. We're not just looking at the philosophical literature, we're looking at the literature more generally, from sociology to cultural studies to media studies to social psychology. And what's always interesting about reading these papers is the vast amount of siloing that's happening within every discipline which is writing on conspiracy theories at this time, in that most social psychologists are not citing sociologists and philosophers. Most cultural theorists aren't citing, say, philosophers, although they might be citing sociologists. There's a lot of people working within their own epistemic bubbles effectively and we need to kind of broaden that discussion because if the social if the sorry if the social scientists are right and conspiracy theories are a problem in need of a solution then they should be drawing on what philosophers are saying and either arguing against us or pointing out where we go wrong and where we go right and in the same respect, if philosophers are going to go around saying, actually, conspiracy theories are not quite the problem you think they are, then we need to be addressing our work towards the social psychologists and the like who are saying, no, but it is a problem, so that we can at least come to terms as to how we're going to resolve this particular tension in the broader academic literature. And I mean, to blow my own horn to a certain extent, being involved in Karen Douglas's project over at the University of Kent, which starts up later this year, is quite nice of being the philosopher who's been invited into a project in social psychology, because obviously Karen has gone, look, we do need to bring other people into this discussion to make sure that whatever we produce there's at least going to be some reason for people outside of our discipline to go, oh, I should have a look at that. I agree. And this does make me think that maybe a new collected project, a new book of new work 
in conspiracy theory going along some of these avenues of investigation is something i should be looking at proposing later on this year so keep keep your schedules open that's all i'm going to say okay sounds good well thank you brian that has been a wide-ranging and incredibly good conversation Uh, i hope you've enjoyed it as well and i hope the listeners have have taken things away from this or make them realize that the academic discussion of these things is a lot more complicated than sometimes we make it out to be. Nope. Thank you. Uh, so thank you very much. No, it was a great conversation. I uh, wish you luck with the rest of the quarantine. Hopefully it uh, stays boring and uh, doesn't get exciting for any reason. And then uh, good luck with uh, the new position. Looking forward to hearing how it all settles out. So am I. I'm also looking forward to the point where borders reopen and maybe we can meet up again in person. That that Wow, that's an amazing idea. We should try that sometime. Well, yes, because I mean, we, we did have that proposed writing retreat that we were going to do last year. And unfortunately, this pesky COVID-19 kind of made that a non-starter. But I'm thinking maybe sometime next year, a writing retreat in the mountains might work out after all. Okay, yeah, let's think about it. We just have to hope that another virus doesn't jump into the human species because, frankly, as people have been pointing out, it's actually it's kind of remarkable that we went so long between the, the Spanish flu and COVID-19. Uh, the next one's probably going to occur a lot sooner than many of us would like it to. Yes, well, hopefully the mRNA virus uh, framework will uh, will help us with that, but we, we'll have to see. Well, yes, and actually my hope is that now that we've got an mRNA uh, vaccine for one particular coronavirus, maybe we could finally get around to wiping out the common cold. That would be nice, but uh, uh, you know, I'd like to get rid of polio first, but you know. Oh, you and your priorities about diseases which are worse than the common cold. I mean, really. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Brian. That has been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Em. And there you have it. Um, An interesting interview to listen to. I think it's, it's particularly nice given the amount we've talked about Brian's work and the amount we've talked about other people talking about Brian's work to actually hear him put forth his own views in his own words and and set the record straight, as it were. It was interesting. The, the, the point about um, comparing the death of JFK to the death of Elvis and the sort of the different effects on them is a good point. But I always think, I always think that the more interesting comparison is the shooting of JFK versus the shooting of Ronald Reagan because there the events are much, much more similar and could have could have probably gone either way. Like I, I think a lot of people perhaps don't realise just how badly Reagan was injured. They certainly tried to play it down at the time, but he was he took a bullet to the lung, and you know w- w- was in surgery. And there was a there was a very real chance I think that he may not have survived either. And had he died, then that probably would have been an event um, on a par with the death of JFK. But, um, as it stands, he survived. The world carried on pretty much as it has been. And, and so there you see a situation where you have two very, very similar events, which happened to have different outcomes. Um, and then end up, you know, the JFK has been, is, is, is one of the the big, big names when it comes to conspiracy theories, really, and has been ever since the 60s. Whereas 
I'm aware of a single conspiracy theory around the shooting of Ronald Reagan, as people have pointed out that John Hinckley Jr.'s father, I assume John Hinckley Sr., um, ran the, um, who was it, Vanderbilt Energy Concern or something? He was, he was, you know, the 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 Hinckleys were um were a. Uh, 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 known to the Bushes, for one thing, were, were sort of were big in Texas, um, and people had always sort of drawn the uh, the insinuation that had Ra- had Hinckley successfully killed Reagan, then uh, George Bush Sr., who was vice president at the time, would have become president then. And it's all, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a fairly, fairly feeble as far as conspiracy theories go, and that's it. That's the only thing that, that sort of gets any mention. And the, the the contrast between the two, which otherwise, you know, aside from their ultimate outcome, two very similar events, um, and yet one generates tons of conspiracy theories and the other one doesn't, simply because of the the ultimate um, impact it had on society and politics as a whole. I did like the point, I'm not sure if this has come up before when we've talked about it, the idea that uh, we, when talking about conspiracies and how long it takes conspiracy theories to become mature, the idea that it's actually possible for conspiracy theories to be mature almost straight away if they are variations on or things which plug into existing conspiracy theories and we see a lot of um with uh, a lot of the sort of the qAnon stuff plug is is just sort of a rehash of um of of the satanic panic which is a rehash of the uh, protocols of the elders of zion or what have you and a lot of the the critical race theory stuff we see going around at the moment is is just just an echo of conspiracy theories that have come before so you can sort of say that while it may take some, some time before you want to say that certain conspiracy theories are mature and the fact that they are mature unwarranted conspiracy theories is a problem for other ones you can pretty much say from the outset well this is this is really just more of the same and we can essentially count it as an unwarranted mature conspiracy theory pretty much from the get-go. And finally, finally, what's this about a Swedish art project that M just casually happens to mention? Oh yes, I've been I've been contributing to some 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 art project about about the faked moon landings or something happening in Sweden. What uh, what's 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 going on there? More more questions as if we didn't have enough already for the good Dr. Dentith whenever we managed to track them down. But um, that has not happened yet, so we'll keep you up to date. Uh, we'll see if if, um, if we're lucky, maybe more of these uh, more of these interviews will materialise in our shared Dropbox, and I'll be able to share them with you, good listeners. But otherwise, we'll just have to keep guessing. So uh, until I, or, or who knows, both of us, talk to you again all i can say is goodbye the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is josh addison and me dr mrx dentist you can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our patreon and remember the truth is out there but not quite where you think you left it